Gracious God, we thank you once again for this time now uh, to go into your word and um, start to introduce the series that's that's upcoming uh, from Genesis. And uh, we're grateful, God, for the entirety of your word. And we are standing on its promises. We are trusting in the gospel that's found therein. And we're seeing you as you are. We do ask once again that you would be our vision. You would be our wisdom. And we would be uh, looking to you, God, to continue to be transformed by your perfect and precious word and powerful word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, Ruth, thank you for that uh, preview of Genesis 1 through 11, especially chapter 1. And uh, that's coming up. Today is kind of uh, an introductory sermon into that series that we're going to start. And um, I want to ask, has anyone been to the Creation Museum in Kentucky? Petersburg, Kentucky? We have one. Yes, great. Um, There's a walkthrough there of uh, what they call the seven seas of history. And um, I don't know if anyone's ever heard of that before, but... Uh, I thought it'd be a good idea to start with um, these C's, and uh, I actually have nine C's, so (laughs) we're going to go quickly today, but it's to help give us an overview of the history of the world, the history of the universe, and I just found that really striking as I was uh, thinking about things and studying this uh, week. Um, This is not just the history of, of America, which is a mere 200 and something years, or even the history of Western civilization, which is a few thousand years, or even the history of the, the Earth, planet Earth. Okay, this is um, the history of the universe. Okay, it's quite, quite epic as we consider God's word and what he's revealed to us. And so it's helpful uh, to remember and, and re- think about these major events that have affected the entire universe, will affect the entire universe, and which God has revealed to us in the Bible. So this is going to serve as the introduction to our Genesis 1 through 11 series, which I have not yet entitled. I have like 10 different working titles and uh, haven't decided yet. So this is the introduction to that. As we look at these, these C's, capital C, I know you're all wondering, what are these C's? We'll get there. Um, a question that everyone should ask, we should consider, is this. Is the Bible meant to be taken as history? Events that happened in real time, described by a real God, telling how he has dealt with real people? Or are we to understand the Bible in a a little bit less literal way? That the events described in it are very important life lessons, which are allegories. Symbolic stories that teach us about morality and ethics and spirituality, but they're not actually history. I think we would all say that the Bible is history. Amen. Faith Bible Church. Um, It's not mere allegory, not ancient stories made up by men of old, among other legends and myths that have been recorded throughout the ages. It tells us the unvarnished truth down to some very nitty-gritty details. And there's a play on words in that word history. And when I say the nine seas of history, I I do mean history, but I also mean the nine seas of his story. It's God's story. The Bible from beginning to end, from first to last, from Genesis through Revelation, reveals to us and reminds us that life is all about him. Life is not about us, despite some, despite the way that some people interpret the Bible and find themselves in every single story and insert themselves in every single story. Life is not about us. It's about him. And so before we get to those C's that I want to quickly run through and kind of give us an overarching picture of his story, um, let me just give you a smattering of verses that You know, there's tons of of these verses that we could go to, but um, that tell us that life is about God. Everything is about God and from the beginning to end. So God created us 
for his glory. Revelation 4, verse 11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. And so why did God create everything? What, what is the reason why you exist, why we're breathing right now today? It's for the glory of God. It's for the name and renown of God. It's for the praising of his infinite perfections. It's to display the excellencies of his character. It's to the praise of his glory and grace, as we sang as one of our opening songs today. This is why we exist. Um, Isaiah 43, verse 23. You can jot these verses down if you want to. Isaiah 43, verse 23, tells us that God called Israel for, guess what, his glory. Isaiah 43, 23. You have not brought to me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings, nor wearied you with incense. And uh, there's a, another verse, Isaiah 49, verse 3. Actually, that is the one that I should have read. Sorry. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. And why did God call and choose Israel? Um, Deuteronomy 9, verse 6. He tells the nation of Israel, Know then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. And he didn't choose Israel because they were incredibly righteous or good or awesome. He picked them because they were, they were the, he, because that's, he, he picked them. That's why. It's because he chose to choose them. Even with Israel, it wasn't about them. And as we extend that to this day, it's, it's good to consider that God delights in making himself known, making much of himself through people who are weak and even stubborn, who are lacking. And we should be very happy and grateful about that. Why did God raise up Pharaoh? Romans 9 verse 17 tells us this. Speaking of Israel and their plight, Romans 9 verse 17, the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So the Bible tells us God allowed Pharaoh into his position of power so that not Pharaoh would be glorified, but God would be glorified. And understand that Pharaoh is pretty much the ruler of the world uh, at that time, in, at that point in history, 1400 B.C. or so, treated like a god. He has a slave force of millions. He has a huge empire. He has a massive army. And God's word says that God gave Pharaoh all of that so that God could crush him and to show that man, even in his highest position, the pinnacle of his power is tiny compared to the almighty power of God. And so we see even Pharaoh's destruction was about God's glory. God rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory. Psalm 106, verses 7 and 8. God defeated Pharaoh in the Red Sea to show his glory. Exodus 14, 4. God spared Israel in the wilderness for the glory of his name. Ezekiel 20, verses 13 and 14. And I'll read you that one because we're not as familiar sometimes with the Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 13 says, The house of Israel rebelled against me, God, in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statues and they rejected my ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he will live. And my Sabbath they greatly profaned. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to annihilate them. But verse 14 says, but I acted for the sake of my of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations before whose sight I had brought them out. And then verse 22 says, but I withdrew my hand and acted for the sake of my name. He's saying for my own glory, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. 
Second Samuel 7 verse 23 tells us that God gave Israel the promised land for the glory of his name. Going to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 12 verse 20 to 22, God did not cast away his people Israel for the glory of his name. In 2 Kings 19 verse 34, God saved Jerusalem from attack at that time. Guess why? For the glory of his name. And lastly, in Ezekiel 36, verse 22 and 23, God restored Israel from exile for the glory of his name. So if you notice, it was a quick perusal overview of the Old Testament history, his story, right? Um, and, and how he dealt with Israel, his chosen people throughout that time. What about the New Testament when we see the coming of Jesus Christ? Well, guess what? He comes. He shows up. He fits right into that very purpose and rhythm that's been established in the Old Covenant, Old Testament that we've just rehearsed. Jesus sought the glory of his father in all that he did. John chapter 7, verse 18, Jesus speaking, he says this, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he, talking about himself, he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true And there is no unrighteousness in him. Jesus told us to do good works so that God would get the glory, right? Matthew 5, 16. We're all familiar with that that verse. Let your light so shine so that everyone would see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus said that he answers prayers so that God would be glorified. Did you know that? John 14, verse 13, he says to his disciples in the upper room, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the father may be glorified in the son. John 14, 13, a little bit earlier in John chapter 12, verses 27 and 28. Jesus endured his final hours of suffering for the glory of God. He says, In verse 27 in John 12, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. In verse 28, he says, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven. This is the father's voice. And he said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So Jesus endured his suffering all the way to the cross for the glory of God. I mean, why does God even forgive us of our sins? Well, Isaiah 43, verse 25 says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions. Guess why? He says, for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God forgives our sin for his own sake, his own glory. Romans 15, verse 7, says that Jesus accepts us into his fellowship for the glory of God. Back to the Gospel of John, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I won't read you the verse, I'll just tell you. John 16, verses 12 to 15, in case you're wondering where that is. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son of God. This is the role of the Holy Spirit, one of his most important roles, to glorify the Son of God. John 17, verse 24, Jesus' ultimate aim himself for us is to see and enjoy his glory. John 17, verse 24 is part of his high priestly prayer. And so in the New Testament, we are commanded in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, another verse that we're all familiar with, What does God command us to do there? Do everything for his glory. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. And so it's interesting that that verse doesn't tell us to to do big and large and great and momentous things. And when you're making the most significant, important decision of your life to bring glory to God. Um, No, that's not the test that he, he lays down for us. Um, he says, eating a sandwich, drinking a cup of coffee, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God in everything you do. The most mundane 
everyday thing. And in 1 Peter 4.11, in case we hadn't get it yet, 1 Peter 4.11, God tells us to serve in a way that would not bring glory to ourselves, but that will glorify him. 1 Peter 4.11, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, it says that Jesus is coming again for his for the glory of God, once again, Second Thessalonians 1, verse 9 and 10 says, Then these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Verse 10, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. Second Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10. Everything that happens will redound to the glory of God, Romans 11, verse 36. And so um, this might be difficult for us sometimes, especially when we're in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering. Uh, Some of us have experienced true and deep tragedy even. And we might ask, how could those things redound to the glory of God? Augustine, the old church father, 300s A.D., the bishop of Hippo, he tried to explain it like this. He said, if you put your face up against a stained glass window, all you would be able to see is jagged edges and broken glass. The farther away from that window you get, the more you would see that it is and was spectacular. But up close... We don't even have a a chance at seeing that. I'm paraphrasing. Um, But this is how it is. Uh, We'll get to more of that um, as we uh, go on in the sermon. But God's plan is to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. Psalm 46, verse 10, tells us to cease striving. Be still and know that I am God. And he says, I will be exalted. I will be glorified among the nations. I will be glorified in the earth. This is his plan. And in the new Jerusalem, the glory of God even replaces the sun. Revelation 21, second to last chapter of the Bible. Revelation 21, verse 23 says, And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. John Piper, helpfully, says this. So the point of the Bible is God. It's not you. God is all about God. He is for himself. When God is working, he is working for God. When he's forgiving you of your sins, that is for the praise of his glorious grace. When he is shepherding you, when he is protecting you, when he is providing for you, he is doing so so that he might be worshipped and enjoyed and praised. So, in fact, the Westminster Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and what? Enjoy him forever. We all exist to worship and praise and love and make much of God. That's why we exist. That's why we're here. So this is a perhaps needed reminder for us because uh, this is the exact antithesis of what the world preaches to us every single day. Everything in our culture goes opposite of that. The world tells us that you are the point It's all about you. You deserve this and you deserve that and you should get this and you should get that. Why shouldn't you? You're entitled. Every marketing campaign that's out there, I just remember those old Burger King ads, have it what? Have it your way. It's no longer just a a commercial fast food slogan. This is the, this is the, the mantra of the world, of our culture. Have it your way. You should. You deserve it. Even churches 
are building around that kind of perspective and philosophy. Hey, it's all about you. It's what you should get. It's what you deserve. We should make a way for you. Make it comfortable for you. What do you want? What do you desire? After all, you're the point. God loves you so much. It's all about you. Well, John Piper goes on here and he says, I want to tell you that today that lovingly that that's not the point. In fact, if we look at it biblically, you're not even in second place. God says he's uppermost. He's first. And then that you are to love others better than yourself. You are bringing home the bronze. You're down on the list. You don't even make the cover. You're a distant third. Then he says, let me tell you why this is the best news in the universe. If God is after the praise of his own glory, glorious grace, then he is not after my begrudging submission to him, but rather he is after my joy. So all the commands in scripture are about God lining you up with how he designed things to be for your greater joy, end quote. And so I just appreciate the way John Piper and his ministry just ties those things together, the glory of God and our joy and satisfaction and delight, not two separate things, but what we were created for, which brings utmost glory to God as we satisfy ourselves in him. So having said all that, um, incredibly, graciously, in God's epic story and in his ultimate purpose to bring glory to his own name, Okay, he created us and he includes us in accomplishing that grand and cosmic and eternal purpose and will. I said it before and I'll say it again. The storyline, the overarching storyline of the Bible is not merely and only soteriological, but it's doxological. Okay, that's the main point. Doxological, doxa, glory. The overarching purpose of God and main storyline of the Bible is doxological. It's to bring redound to the glory of God. Some people say the Bible is about our salvation. Well, it is, but it's only our salvation so that God would be glorified. So Psalm 8, um, such a great, great psalm. Listen, it says, Oh Lord, this is a psalm of David. He agrees with all this. Um, surprise, surprise. Psalm 8, verse 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. And then he says in verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, he asked this question, What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas, and he ends it the way he began it. Verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. goes back to glorifying God. So um, for the remainder of our time today, that was a, a little bit of a long introduction to the introduction. But the remainder of our time today, I just want to give a brief overview of, of the Bible's history, of God's story, his story with these nine C's. And uh, we'll do our best to get through all of them. I'm just going to comment a little bit on, on each and We'll end with the last one and uh, say a little bit more about that. But um, these nine C's, are you ready? Number one, I think you've uh, figured it out by now because uh, Ruth's offertory gave it away. But it is creation, creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And creation, Genesis 1 and 2, tell us the story, right? And so as we get into our series starting next week, more specifically, um, we need to deal with things, right? Uh, creation versus evolution, the theory of evolution versus God's story. Um, we need to deal a little bit with young earth versus old earth. 
and uh, just a, a controversial thing, but um, I, I really just think that we need to uh, talk about that some. Uh, but along with those kind of overarching big things from Genesis 1 and 2 and just the whole council of Scripture, in Genesis 1, verse 26 to 28, what is it to be made in God's image, a male and female? And so that speaks to the current issues, uh, that people's confusion about trans issues. Um, we, we need to talk about the first humans, Adam and Eve, of which some people even within quote-unquote Christendom are questioning whether Adam was a, a man of history, an actual living person, or is this some allegory and some uh, legend or symbolic story that, that gives us helpful spiritual uh, principles. Uh, it also, Genesis 1 and 2, about marriage and issues of sexuality. And so um, we're going to just do our best to cover uh, those things as we tackle the first two chapters of Genesis. But that leads to the second C of God's story, which is Genesis chapter 3, corruption, a corruption. Uh, The first 13 verses of Genesis 3 tell us about Satan's temptation and then the fall of man. And um, we will go through that. And again, is that history or is that some kind of allegory which kind of tries to give some explanation of why why things are the way they are? Um, We believe it's history. It's his story. And God has revealed it to us in love. And verses 14 to 21, the curse and the covering is told to us. The curse, what happens uh, to the serpent and, and man and the woman and the world. And yet, what a wonderful thing that God does not leave his precious creation and humankind and handiwork without hope. But even in that verse 15, as he gives covering for his fallen creatures, um, it's a hint of the promise to one day send a redeemer. And so um, we're going to cover all that in Genesis 3. I'm not sure how far we'll get into Genesis chapter 4, where we meet Cain and Abel and the first murder uh, is recorded. And then the next, see, the third out of nine. Is Genesis chapters six through nine. And it's the catastrophe. Catastrophe. And of course, this is the story of the flood. And there's issues of whether this was a a local flood or a, a worldwide global flood. We'll get into that a little bit, but um, also very importantly, it speaks to the continuing sin of man and uh, how depraved man was and is and continued to be. And not only that, but also the wonderful salvation and mercy of God and with Noah and his wife and their family. And so um, in the answers in Genesis, uh, One resource there tells us that the earth covering event of the flood has left its mark even today from the thousands of feet of sedimentary rock rock found around the world to the billions of dead things buried in rock layers, which is fossils. The flood reminds us even today that our righteous God cannot and will not tolerate sin. And the ark reminds us that he provides a way of salvation from sin's punishment. I appreciated that, again, pointing to the gospel, pointing to salvation, pointing to the character of God to rescue his people. And we even get a a hint of that in that incredible event of history. And so the next C is a few chapters later, Genesis chapter 11, which is confusion, which is the Tower of Babel in verses 1 through 9 of Genesis 11. After the flood, God commanded Noah and his family, who were the only humans left in the world, eight people. He commanded them to what? Be fruitful and multiply. 
right? And fill the earth. Genesis 8, verse 17, and Genesis 9, verse 1. But eventually, the human race, they disobeyed God's command. Sin abounds and sin continues. And so they build this tall tower, which they hoped would keep them together and keep them from scattering and dispersing. They wanted to build a name for themselves. And so sin continues, the pride of man, vainglory, self-glory, versus opposing the glory of God. So God brings a, a confusion, a multiplicity of languages in place of that common language that all the people spoke and this caused them to spread out, to scatter abroad the whole earth. And so this is the origin of all the languages and tribes and nations in the world today. This is where we've all descended from. And so, um, again, these are things that we're going to tackle in more detail when we get there. But um, amazing truth that God has revealed to us in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So these are the first four C's of history. And I don't know how much beyond we'll, we'll get uh, to in, in uh, the coming weeks and in the series that uh, we're going to do. But let me finish the rest of these C's, which is the next one, covenant. And this is one of the ones that I've added as I just uh, think about the scope of the Bible and what happens next in the story, because in Genesis chapter 12 is where we meet a man named Abram, Abraham, who is the father of Israel. And so it goes Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And so the covenant that God makes with Abraham, which is found in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 18, and it's reiterated to his sons and to his grandsons, Isaac and Jacob, and all the way through Joseph and as the rest of Genesis unfolds for us, the Abrahamic covenant promises to Israel, to God's chosen people, Israel. And he promises to Abraham that he's going to make a nation which is even greater than the, the number of stars in the sky or sand on the sea. And he's promising them a portion of land. And he's promising them blessing. And he's giving them all of these things. And Genesis 12 and on um, explain that to us. And then when you go through the history of, of the people of Israel, we, we're, we're met with uh, Moses. And there's another covenant given to Moses, which is a little different from the Abrahamic covenant. But um, there's a covenant given to Moses also in Exodus. But that leads to the people entering into the promised land. And it leads to the, the time of the judges after they conquer the pagan nations and they're in. And now they're getting into all the, the sin of the nations around them, even though God told them not to do that. And so that leads to um, them receiving a king. And it leads to King Solomon, which leads to King David, which leads to the Davidic covenant, which is found in Second Samuel chapter 7. In Second Samuel chapter 7, um, God tells David this, verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. And it goes on and kind of this is repeating um, and overlapping with the Abrahamic covenant from before. But he says in verse 12, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom And he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 8, is the Davidic covenant. So this continues on into the history of Israel. And after David dies, sorry, I I reversed that. It was uh, David, and then comes Solomon, right? So I was thinking of Saul. But um, Solomon comes and then the history of the kings, the divided nation, the north and the south and all the, the, the sin of the people and the rejection of the prophets goes on and on and on. And so what happens is they get exiled 
And God gives through the prophet Jeremiah during the time of the exile the new covenant. The new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. And I'll just read a few verses here for you. Jeremiah 31, um, verse 31. Chapter 31, verse 31 says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, because this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So this is the new covenant which is ushered in later. It's for Israel just like the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants and all the covenants from the old time. But the promises of the new covenant will not be finally fulfilled until Israel comes into a right relationship with God which is not going to happen until the time of the tribulation, especially at the end when the Christ returns the second time. But the church, meanwhile, now participates in the new covenant as recipients of God's grace and God's gospel being brought to him by the Holy Spirit. And we're now in Christ, Ephesians 2, verses 12 and 13. Okay, So that is the covenants in a very brief, short um, nutshell which are very important part of history, as we just even think about the whole purview of the, the Old Testament. And so this does bring us to the sixth C, which is Christ, which is the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament. And we see Christ, we meet him in the Gospels most clearly and explicitly, and in the rest of the New Testament as well, about his teachings and doctrines. But our salvation comes through Christ alone. He is the creator God who stepped into history to become a man. Philippians 2, that wonderful passage, verses 5 through 11. The son of man, the second Adam, he would do what the first Adam did not do, which was live a perfect life in obedience to the father completely. First Corinthians 15, verses 45 to 49 tell us that he was the redeemer who was promised centuries earlier and even was given a hint of in Genesis chapter 3 in that covering for Adam and Eve. But um, he came to save his people from their sins, Matthew 1, verse 21. So Christ is, um, again, not just uh, the, the, the issue or the, the subject or the story of, of one country, of Israel. It's not, he's not the story of America it's not the story of Europe. It's not the story of Africa. Okay, this is the story of Jesus is the point of it all. He's the point of the entire universe, the cosmos. And, and what happens, this is why I don't believe in alien life, okay? that there's life on, on Mars or out there somewhere. Okay? Jesus is the point of the entire cosmos, of everything that, that, that's known, that God created. And it leads to the seventh C, which is the cross, Christ and him crucified. And Jesus would display God's glory most explicitly, most clearly, most beautifully by being crucified on that cross. And, of course, the gospel doesn't end with the death and burial of Jesus Christ, but with the glorious resurrection rising three days later paying the death penalty for those who receive his free gift of eternal life and showing that to be true and vindicating God's justice and God's righteousness by rising again from the dead. He didn't stay in the grave, but he rose. He appeared to many. And as we went over a few Sundays ago, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God even now, ruling, ruling over the hearts of those who are his, his in the sphere of the kingdom of God, and one day, one day he'll be back and we'll get to that at the end. But before that, before that time, is the eighth C, which is church, the church. And um, Israel is kind of in a, a bit of a holding pattern, okay, in God's broad and epic plan. 
at least as far as I can tell from Scripture, um, now is this parenthetical church age as we consider just uh, just uh, the, the way that God has unfolded history. And Matthew 16, verse 18 is the first mention of the church in Jesus' words. He says, I will build what? My church, right? And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Matthew 16, verse 18. So there's this new entity, this new institution, uh, this new, it's not an organization, but it's an organism, this new living spiritual organism, which the Bible calls even the bride of Christ. Okay, Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9. And as a last one, I'll give you Revelation 21, verses 1 through 2. I'll read it for us. John, the apostle writing, Revelation 21, 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And so the other verses uh, that I mentioned and others in Scripture speak of this bride, the bride of Christ, which is the church. And so um, we are in this church age uh, currently. And this leads us to the final C, the ninth C, which is consummation, consummation. And this is not only the book of Revelation, but actually was uh, talked about in the Old Testament. And it continues to be talked about in the New Testament, including most specifically in Revelation. The word consummation simply means something which is finalized or completed. It's something which is finalized or completed. And um, as I mentioned earlier, our Phoebe is uh, her high school graduation is a is a consummation of four years of hard work. Okay, um, They call it a commencement, right? Which is actually beginning, means beginnings. But they're looking to the future. But um, for our purposes here, consummation, we'll call it. And so something which is finalized or completed. And as we were finishing up or towards the tail end of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, our study um, a few months ago, Mark chapter 13, once again, we went over kind of an overview of eschatology, the, the end times, the study of last end times. And so, again, just the rapture is the most imminent thing, the thing that um, we understand that is going to happen with, without anything else needing to happen before that. It could happen, Lord willing, Lord, whatever his Lord will is, the rapture, the, the church being taken up, into heaven to be with the Lord, First Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 17, most explicit passage uh, about the rapture, First Corinthians 50, 15, verses 50 to 52, another one, and John 14, verses 1 to 3 is uh, uh, another one that some theologians have added to that, which uh, I think maybe just um, uh, implied, I'm not sure that I would say that's most explicit, but the rapture is going to be followed by the tribulation period, seven-year tribulation period, which is described in most detail, Revelation 6 through 19. So a big chunk of the book of Revelation is about the tribulation. And that's going to be followed by the second coming of Christ after that seven-year period, Revelation 19. Um, again, just sticking to the book of Revelation, Jesus is going to come no longer for salvation, but for judgment. And then at the end of or not the end of, but um, after he comes, he's going to usher in the thousand-year reign of the king on earth, known as the millennial kingdom, which is talked about in Revelation chapter 20. And at the end of that is going to be the final judgment at the end of Revelation 20. And as I just read to you, from 21 and 22, uh, is going to be the new heaven and new earth, otherwise known as the eternal state. After this universe as we know it, everything in it, including planet Earth, destroyed, Peter says, melted by just uh, heat, not by water, but um, it's going to burn up and be completely destroyed in a new heaven and new earth. 
God is going to bring in. And so, consummation is our final C. And you want to jot this passage down. Colossians 1, verses 18 through 20. Listen to this. Paul says, speaking of Jesus, He is also the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Okay, this is all encompassing. The, the cross of Christ, the, what happens in the person and work of Christ has cosmic significance, eternal significance. And it says there, whether things on earth or things in heaven, okay, made peace through the blood of his cross. So this is consummation. Everyone who has repented and placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, his finished work on the cross on their behalf, get to look forward to this consummation of all things in the future. Okay, the curse, the corruption, is going to be removed. God will provide the new heaven and new earth for all his children. And John gives us a, a glimpse of that in Revelation chapter 5. And I was going to read the whole passage, but... Uh, Let me just read Revelation 5, verse 9. And this is the four living creatures and the 24 elders falling down before the Lamb, singing a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then verse 13, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So just a, a glimpse, once this glorious consummation, once this grand this unbelievably epic and majestic and wide-ranging um, will and plan and purpose of God is consummation. And so I want to conclude our, our sermon today uh, just to give us encouragement and draw out a, a, a very important implication of this. Okay, a big part of what consummation entails and means is that it is the start of God's ultimate glory. Okay? All the reason why anything and everything exists now. Um, God is being glorified in a certain uh, way, but in the eternal state, when everything is consummated, he's going to be glorified for the purpose that he planned for it from, from eternity past. For him to receive perfect worship and love and affection and adoration and and fear and affection and everything is is going to happen at that time. And so along with that, dear people, is also the end of suffering, the end of suffering in the world, Um, the end of our our suffering. We still suffer in this world. Uh, Jesus said that we would. I remind you of his words from John 16, verse 33. He says, these things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, many, many troubles and trials and hurts and pain. But he says, but take courage, take heart. I have overcome the world. I could give you many more verses about um, suffering that we are promised as Christians, as Christ followers. But 2 Timothy 3, verse 12 Paul writes to his young pastor who's going to face suffering. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So this just, um, as I shared in in Sunday school, just about uh, the baby shower that we went to and 
just much suffering that the couple that we were uh, ministering to and just rejoicing with um, yesterday after their many years trial, um, I was brought back to the Second uh, Corinthians passage, but also brought back to the story of Job and the book of Job. Um, you know why God causes the, the innocent to suffer? We're never going to know uh, exactly, but there are a few lessons there for us. And uh, I want to ask, have you ever thought about Job's righteousness? Like, where did Job get get that righteousness? God pointed him out, right? He even points him out to Satan and says, look at my servant Job, He's the most noble, virtuous, righteous man. Um, where to come from? Well, listen, Job's righteousness was not of his own. It's just like us as New Testament believers. It comes from, comes from God. It's a supernatural gift of God, which is for the purpose of bringing glory to God. And he wasn't pointing to, to Job to say, look at how, how good this guy is. Uh, ultimately, it was to bring glory to himself. And so he was saying that God was saying that Job was not going to fail because his righteousness was not of his own. It was from him, from God. And so his faith, Job's faith, Job's obedience was not just this manipulative ploy uh, to gain blessings from God, to gain favor from God, as Satan was saying. Right. Oh, take away everything and he will he will not praise you anymore. Right. No, it, it wasn't that. Actually, Job's faith and righteousness was was unshakable. It could not be taken away. And God knew that um, because it, it was alien to himself. It was from God. So God's purpose to allow Satan to attack Job and to tempt him, to test him, was to prove Satan wrong and was really to prove the unfailing power of genuine saving faith. And this is true of us, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, when, when we are faced with trials and deep suffering and just things are, are just going haywire, um, we are proving the unfailing power of true saving faith. Because again, it is a gift of God. It is, it is God's work in us. It's God's gift to us. And, you know, Job's faith never failed. Job 13 verse 15 tells us that. But it, listen, it did falter under the tremendous pressure and weight of these unexplained and undeserved and even unbearable suffering and loss. Okay, this gives us perspective, right? When we just take a few moments to think about Job's suffering and what, what he lost. Um, and as that, that pain and sorrow of loss increased, um, Again, his faith did not fail, but it was it was it was faltering. It was it was being being shaken, and so he repeatedly calls God to court in those many chapters, right? Um, almost forty chapters of him with his three unwise counselors, but Job calling God to court in order to justify himself, to verify his innocence, and try to get a uh, a standing there, but. I think we all know, right, that God never once gave Job an audience to present his case. He didn't show up in the midst of that long, 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 drawn-out conversation days. God never explained to Job what was going on. He never once allowed himself to be dragged into Job's court, into human court. Even righteous Job who God himself said was a very virtuous man. Okay, instead, he responds to Job's demand for a, a judicial hearing by, by basically intimidating him with his own glory. Okay, Job 38 verses 1 through 7. Um, I think it's worth just, just being reminded of that. Job 38 uh, the first few verses, it's after all of the conversations and um, Job's words and the counselor's words. Chapter 38, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. He shows up suddenly and said, 
Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And God goes on there and rightly, lovingly, and yet very firmly, God puts Job in his right place. Job was faced with the reality that no matter how severe and inexplicable, unexplainable, and unfair the trial, God is not to be challenged. He's only to be trusted. Hey, why is that? Hey, God tells him, again, very straightforwardly, but very, very lovingly. It's because God alone is the creator, the sustainer, the controller, the redeemer, and the consummator. Hey, this is why I'm, I'm, I'm going here. He's the consummator of all things, even our troubles and trials and sufferings. Job was learning that to even question such a omnipotent, omniscient, transcendent God was, was folly. And he became deeply convicted. He realized how presumptuous it was to even insinuate that God is unfair. And when we read those chapters, right, the, when, when Job is talking with them, we start to get an inkling of, of that's, that's what he was implying, even though his faith did not fail. Okay, so um, to do that, Job is, is realizing that it was an act of, of treason against the Most High God. So dear Job, he was humbled and he humbly humbles himself before Almighty God, even though he had lost everything except his life okay? and wife, I might add. And so a wife who says to him, you know, curse God and die, uh, you know, people have, have kind of commented on that and even in jest said that Satan knew what he was doing by keeping her alive. Um, but, but, I mean... I, I, I understand that, but I also think of what what an incredibly horrible thing to say to someone, okay, to curse God and die. Um, so just even in that little statement, um, incredible depravity. But Job did not, and he rebukes her instead. So lessons here. Um, Job's circumstances didn't change at all when God shows up in chapter 38. But his perspective after God does show up and does reveal himself to him even that much more closely and intimately and forthrightly. Um, Job's perspective changed in an extreme way, drastically. Okay? His, any inklings of, of pride or ignorance um, gave way to humility and wisdom, true wisdom. All the answers that he and his friends were going back and forth with to try to explain God's reason for, for giving so much pain and suffering on Job were worthless. They were mistaken. They were misapplied theology. Some truths, but not at the right time, not at the right application. Their counsel and words were worth only God's rebuke. 42 verse 7 says, It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. And this is after Job repents. So, again, we know that God never, even afterwards, never gave Job an explanation. And it wasn't only because God didn't owe him an explanation. But as others have said, probably Job wouldn't wouldn't have been able to understand it or accept it, even if God did tell him the explanation. So to quote uh, a pastor named David Harrell, he says this, Why the innocent suffer 
is an inscrutable mystery known only to God who has ordained it for purposes that ultimately contribute to his glory. And this is a lesson all of us can learn. The tragic consequences of living in a fallen, sin-cursed world are inevitable, albeit more severe for some than others. A reality that should cause every believer to hate sin all the more and rejoice in the certain hope that we will one day be delivered from every appearance and effect of evil. End quote. So the end of the story, um, at least the end of Job's story, and again, there's an illustration here, a picture for us about the endimation, the end, the consummation of all things for every believer. But the end of Job's story here, and God is demonstrating his unfailing love, his compassion. He restores Job's health, his fortunes, and his family. And when Job prays for his friend, verse 10 says, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. And he gave him even more. Gave him even more children. And so... Um, James gives us a very, very encouraging verse uh, commenting on God's amazing loving kindnesses. Uh, speaking of Job's ordeal, James 5, verse 11. It says, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. James 5:11. So in that real life illustration of Job, history, okay, his story, real life person, man actually went through all those things in God's ultimate will and purpose. And God gives us this graciously. He reveals it to us out of his love for us, truth we see most vividly that God has a right to be trusted. He has a right to be trusted as God, and he is worthy to be trusted completely. And as we continue to, to strive to trust God all the more, do we have any greater comfort than knowing for certain that we're going to one day bask in the fullness of his goodness and his grace and his glory for all eternity? I don't know that there's any greater comfort than that. And I'm going to end with Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And how wonderful it is to consider that today. In the midst of uncertainty, trials, the troubles of this world, personal strife and Issues that we're going through. Revelation 21, God promises we're going to be in his presence forever. In the new heaven, new earth, the eternal state. And um, God is going to wipe away every tear. No more crying, no more mourning, no more pain, no more suffering. But no, complete worship and love and eternal bliss with the God who has granted us all of this. So I hope this was a helpful introduction to our Genesis 1 through 11 series as we think of those nine C's and think of the broad scope of God's story of creation and corruption and of catastrophe and of confusion and of the covenants and of Christ, our precious Savior, and the precious work he did on the cross and of the precious church that we are part of even today 
which is going to come to an end at some point, but after all the things that God has revealed to us in his word and the consummation of all things, this is our, our final hope. And um, there should not be any greater comfort than all of that. So uh, let us pray as we close our service. And uh, I invite you once again to talk about these things as we fellowship during lunchtime. But uh, please pray as we conclude our time. Father, thank you for your great providence, which is uh, your purposeful sovereignty in which you accomplish all things for your ultimate goal for the universe, which is to bring glory to yourself in the final consummation after you started all this uh, from eternity past and you started it thousands of years ago in the beginning of this cosmos. And uh, from that time, God, you have given us your word and shown us and revealed to us uh, what the end game is. And so we agree with the Westminster Confession. Uh, the chief end of man is to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. Thank you for making us part of your glorious will and your divine providence and uh, that we can serve you uh, towards that end. Uh, we can live for your glory and bring others into that as we are called to. So thank you, God, for your perfect and eternal word of which Jesus says heaven, the heavens and the earth will pass away, but not one jot or tittle of your word will, and uh, it will continue, and we're grateful for that, God. Thank you that we have unity and fellowship in the gospel and in the living and written word for which we praise you in Christ's precious name. Amen.